growing up for me, there was one thing that made Christmas. One thing that really defined it, didn't feel like Christmas without it. One thing I always looked forward to, Boney M's Christmas album. Yeah. By far, this is the greatest Christmas album of the 20th and 21st century. The definitive Christmas album. Got it up on the screen here. I remember this record as a kid. Uh, forgive their lack of clothing. It was the 70s. People were doing all sorts of things then. And uh, I, I don't know. Christmas togas were a thing. I'm not sure. Great album, though. Great album. I love it. I love this album. Um, for the past couple of weeks, we've been working through <coughs> the first two chapters of the book of Luke. And we've been taking a look. Uh, the series is called Songs of a Savior. We've been looking at the four songs that Luke has listed there. And um, um, remember, back at the beginning, we had um, Aaron Boswell came in, and he opened the series with the first song that Jesus' Mary, uh, Mother Mary sang. And last week, Pastor James walked us through um, Zachariah's song that he spontaneously broke into. While Boney M might have went gold, these songs, I, they've gone platinum, palladium, whatever comes belong, uh, beyond that. Um, they've been sung for thousands of years. They've been preached through. They've been studied. Um, this morning, we're going to jump over track three on Luke's album here. We're going to jump right into track four. James will double back on, um, on, on number three tomorrow at the pipe shop. But um, this morning, what I want to take a look at is Simeon's song presented in Luke 2. Before we dive in, though, for those who are new to the Bible, as we all once were, I want to give you a little bit of a backstory on Luke, Luke's gospel. Well, Matthew and John were disciples of Jesus. They were sort of part of his inner cohort and the 12 that lived with him and, and spent three years being taught directly by him. Luke and Mark were not. Luke and Mark are, are a little different. We don't really know when they came to faith. It seems after Jesus died. They, they followed around and were trained by some of the disciples and then went out on missionary journeys with Paul, uh, Paul and the other, the other disciples. But what really sets Luke's gospel apart and why I really love it is that it was a work commissioned by a rich benefactor named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus, um, is who he was, what he did is not entirely clear, but there's a few working theories. The first of those, um, the most common, is he's a high-ranking Roman official, um, somebody in the Roman government. Another, <clears throat> another theory, um, another possibility is he was a, a wealthy Roman benefactor who supported Paul and Luke as they went out on these missionary journeys. And so Luke is writing all of this in order to kind of um, do a first century blog update for Theophilus to let them know what they've been up to. Another theory, and I'm, I find this one quite intriguing, is that Theophilus was a Roman lawyer who was defending Paul in his trial in Rome. And so Luke and the book of Acts would have been Luke's compilation of information, sort of as a, a legal brief to be used in Paul's defense. Now, I say all that. Um, flip with me just over to Luke 1. He opens the book this way by saying, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, so other people have been writing about the life of Jesus, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered those to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time now, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So the question I want to open us with is why is Luke 
in the opening chapters of this account that he's sending to Theophilus, including these four songs. What's included specifically this morning in the song of Simeon that he thinks Theophilus needs to know? Because you and I were similar to Theophilus in that we weren't firsthand um, experiencers or witnesses of the life and ministry of Christ. And because the Holy Spirit has included Luke in the canon of Scripture for you and I today, the question is, what is there for us in this song of Simeon? What is Luke wanting us to see? And I think that there's three things that Luke wants us to see in the life of Jesus and specifically the song of Simeon. Um, They're up on the screen. The, The summation of God's eternal plan, the consolation of God's eternal people, and the unleashing of God's eternal kingdom. So if you would open your Bibles, we're going to be reading Luke 2, as you just heard read. Luke 2 will begin in verse 21. Let me pray, though, and then we will get going. Uh, Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the season, all that we're remembering, you sending your son into human history in pursuit of weary sinners. Emmanuel, God with us, you're great. And we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the word. You've met me just in rich ways this week as I've studied it. I pray as a congregation, as your people, as your body here, that you would nourish us, you would excite us, that Holy Spirit, you would just help us see Christ in a new way. You'd help us see the depths and riches of the scripture, what are put here for our edification, our upbuilding, and I pray that we would be built up by it. And I think also just of our brothers and sisters in Indonesia this morning and the tsunami and everything going on there, I pray your church would be a light in these dark times. I pray that people would find hope in this tragedy and what's supposed to be a season of celebrating. Um, Somehow your church would just be a, a beacon of hope and truth and that you would be made much of in the midst of tragedy and uh, know that you work this way all the time and know that you work all things according to your will. And so, but we just praise your people for our brothers and sisters there now. Amen. Well, we're picking up not where we left off last uh, week. James is, like I said, going to unpack all of the third track on Luke's um, LP here tomorrow. But what we need to know about chapter 2 before we just pick it up is that um, chapter 2 opened with the birth of Jesus birth of Jesus, and then there's some shepherds out in a field. Um, They're just kind of minding their own business, doing what shepherds do, and all of a sudden, angels show up and sing track three. They're so flabbergasted by this, they head into town, find Joseph and Mary. They do their own sort of cover version, a cappella, sing it to Joseph and Mary, and the text says that they're, they're bewildered. All these things are being said about their son. And, and for some reason or another, Joseph and Mary find themselves in what is turning out to be some sort of musical. So read with me verse 21. At the end of eight days after he was born, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And the, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So why is Luke spending precious ink telling a Roman named Theophilus all these seemingly small details, details that neither Matthew or John or Mark include in their Gospels. 
Well, Luke's writing this, so Theo, whether he's a Roman official or a Roman lawyer, uh, he would see that Christianity, which is exploding across the known world at this time, it's not a new thing. It's not a new belief, which would have been illegal under Roman rule. Luke's trying to show Theophilus that the Christians, which were suddenly springing up everywhere, aren't insurrectionists or some sectarian group that's dividing off of Judaism. Jesus wasn't some new zealot leading people into something new, but rather Jesus was the fulfillment, the purpose, the summation of the entirety of the Jewish scriptures, of everything that had ever been spoken to the Jewish people. And he brings up three items in order to illustrate this. First off is uh, Jesus' circumcision, then Mary's purification, and thirdly, the consecration of Jesus. James talked a little bit last week about Jesus' circumcision. Uh, This was in accordance with Genesis 17 that said all who were members of God's first covenant with the nation of Israel were to be circumcised. Then he brings up Mary's purification. This comes from uh, Leviticus 12. It says that when somebody gives birth, they're to spend 40 days uh, alone, and then from there they're to go up to the temple and offer either a lamb or some turtle doves if they couldn't afford a a, a lamb. And and we notice here in the text that it's noted that they sacrificed a couple turtle doves, which is indicating to us they weren't wealthy aristocrats. This Jesus that went on to, to found this growing movement of Christianity, he wasn't from the religious or political elite. He come from a poor working class family. And finally, in verse 23, uh, Luke references Jesus's consecration the fulfilling of God's command, which was given to the people of Israel right as they were being brought up out of Egypt, if you remember from our Exodus series. Right as they were being brought up, they were told the firstborn male was to be set apart and dedicated to the Lord as holy and for his service. So Luke's recording these details in order to show us three things. These are up on the screen as well. Jesus doesn't contradict the law and prophets He fulfills them. Everything that was required by the Jewish law had been fulfilled by its champion, Jesus. Secondly, Jesus isn't a deviation from Judaism. He's the summation of it. He's actually the point of it. It's what all of Judaism pointed to. Thirdly, Jesus isn't only the summation of God's plan for Israel, but God's plan for the whole world. This is, uh, this is going to come more apparent once Simeon starts to sing very shortly, but in just to f- fast forward, uh, verse 30 and 31, he says, and I'll just paraphrase it, uh, Jesus is the salvation prepared in the presence of all peoples and for all peoples. He was prepared in the presence of all peoples. All the nations were there in Israel, and he's for all peoples. Jesus is the summation of God's plan for not only Israel, but all of humanity. This is what Luke is telling Theophilus. Before we move on to Simeon's spontaneous song, I want us to know just a little bit about Simeon, figure out what we can know, which is not much. We don't don't know much. He doesn't appear in any of the other uh, gospel accounts. Um, But Luke says that he's righteous and devout, meaning he lived a life in... Uh, reverence and awe and, and fear and service to God. And at some point, we're not sure when, the Holy Spirit has shown up, um, spoken to him and let him know that uh, the long-awaited Messiah who had been prophesied through the 926 books of the Old Testament or chapters of the Old Testament, it's not that long, 
He was going to come into the temple and that Simeon himself was going to get to see him. Simeon, he was given the promise of God, more or less. He wasn't going to die until he saw the Messiah come. What we need to know, though, is Simeon's not the only one waiting for the Messiah. I said, there's countless prophecies pointing forward to this Messiah figure. Israel's found themselves under Roman occupation, and people are starting to long. Some people have actually gone back to the book of Daniel. They've busted out their abacuses, and, and, and they're kind of trying to figure out the day. And many people are figuring out, like, hey, the Messiah's got to be showing up at any time, according to these old prophecies. Many people are waiting, looking, expecting that a Messiah was going to show up. Luke's presenting Jesus as the summation of all these prophecies before, all the while sticking the spoke, uh, a stick in the spokes of the idea that Jesus was going to be some sort of military or political Messiah that would deliver them from Rome. While many were looking, perhaps even longing, Luke presents Simeon in a very different way. And note it with me. It's in verse 25. He says, Simeon is waiting. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Luke uses waiting more than all the other authors of the New Testament combined. He really likes this word. It's going to come up again in verse 38 this morning. If you have a pencil with you, highlight that, shade it, do whatever you got to do. Mark this word. We're going to come back to it a little later, but it's an important one. He doesn't say Simeon's waiting for political freedom either. He says Simeon's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Second thing, I think that Luke wants us to see in the birth of Christ and the song of Simeon is Jesus is the consolation of God's eternal people. There was a man named Simeon who was righteous and, righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, the consolation. Now this word consolation in Greek, it's uh, the Greek word paraklesis, paraklesis. If I'm um, if that sounds familiar, it's because, well, we were working through 1 John for the past several months. The word parakletos came up a lot. And parakletos and paraklesis, they're very related. If a paraklesis means to be comforted, parakletos refers to the one who does the comforting. They're very similar, you see. And it, what it's doing, it's pointing back to Isaiah, Isaiah 51. This is a chapter in your Bibles. If you do flip there, you don't need to, but you'll see a chapter heading there um, that says, um, probably the Lord's comfort for Zion. The Lord's comfort for, for Zion. This chapter in Isaiah was a prophecy about how God was going to come and be the consolation for his people, the paraclesis for his people. And in there, we read God saying this. I, I am he who comforts you. So he's talking about what, that this Messiah was going to come and he was going to bring comfort to the nation. Then in the middle of it, he says, I, I am he who comforts you. What this tells us, God is both the paraclesis and the parakletos. In English, because it's easier, God is both the consoler and the consolation. He's the consoler and the consolation. 
Jesus himself is the comfort that would come. So we need to not just define this word consolation a little more. This is not consolation in the millennial sense where like, hey, you didn't get first, second, or third prize, but you still get a trophy. It's not that. It's not like we bought you the cheapest trophy we could get at the trophy shop. Here you go. Hope you feel good about yourself. This is the richest present you could ever receive consolation. Himself. Jesus. Jesus is the consolation. Now look at this with me. Verse 27, right after he says this, this is what they're waiting for. It says Simeon in, in, in the ESV, which we principally read from, he came in the spirit into the temple. Some of you likely reading the NIV, it puts it this way. It says, moved by the spirit, he was, went into the temple. Other translations will say the spirit brought him, the spirit led him. Something's going on here and the spirit's letting him know, go up to the temple. And so he goes up into the temple courts and he sees Jesus. Right away, he knows this is the Messiah. This is the promised comforter. This is the consoler. And he takes him up in his arms, um, kind of getting the, the picture of like Rafiki and Simba. He holds him up and, and he bursts into song. He starts singing. Lord, I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. <coughs> Let me ask you, if you remember back to the 2010 Olympics, um, Sidney Crosby scored that amazing overtime goal, led Team Canada to the victory. What did you do? You cheered? What did you do? <coughs> Hugged people, complete strangers. You cheered, you cheersed. You sang, oh, Canada. Why? Because the hope and the delight and, and, and really the longing of our nation was summed up and invested in this game. Let me ask you, when Vancouver lost game seven to the Bruins, what did you do? What did you do? Somebody. You tipped a car? I got a new watch. Um, no, <laughs> the city rioted. Why? Because the hopes and the longings of our city were summed up in a silly hockey game. We needed to express frustration at our loss. Maybe, maybe you didn't flip a car, light anything on fire, but you were probably quite upset if you're a Canucks fan. I encourage you. Um, the investigation's closed now, so you can come clean, but... Um, Simeon sings. Simeon sings because it's not just the nation um, of Israel, but really the hopes of the whole world are summed up in this coming Messiah. The hope of freedom, not just from Rome, but the hope of freedom from sin, suffering, death. It was all on this coming Messiah, and he shows up. In the arrival of Jesus, we see the plan of God that was spelled out for thousands of years before come to a climactic moment in Jesus' arrival. We see hundreds of prophecies that pointed forward, fulfilled, brought together, tied into a bow around the present that is God's gift to us, Jesus. How could he not sing? Knowing this, seeing this, how could he not sing? 
When we properly behold God and all he is, we can't help but sing either. That's why as a congregation we gather and we sing every week. That's why some of the greatest worship songs in, in human history um, have been about God. You take a look at like great composers were singing songs about God, but some of the richest hymns we have are sung by people who don't have fantastic voices. They were just great theologians who spent a lot of time looking into who God was. And when you behold God and all that he is, when you see him in his word, you can't but help but sing. But church, we don't just sing because Jesus came. We sing because of what Jesus did. And this is the third point, I think, that Luke is setting up for us in the birth of Christ and the song of Simeon, is that Jesus unleashed God's eternal kingdom. Verse 33, we see, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. I can't imagine everything that's been going on. They're perplexed. They marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that's opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus came into human history to fulfill God's plan of redemption for all of humanity. Mankind, we were born into bondage of our own sinful desires. We have a heart-level orientation that is not directed to God, but rather away from him, which means that every single one of us is in a broken relationship with God. The sinister plan of the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1 and 2 inaugurated this brokenness, uh, and it kind of looks like it had taken over. It kind of looked like his plan was victorious, but then Jesus came, Emmanuel, as we sang, which means God with us. And all the powers of darkness converged on him. They saw the light of the world come in, and darkness from everywhere came after him. And they got hold of him, and they killed him. Jesus was falsely accused. He was crucified. Simeon says that he was appointed for a sign that is opposed. Christianity is unique in that the, it's God came to earth and suffered and was humiliated. You don't find that narrative in any other world religion. Christianity presents a God who came down and was humiliated and killed. But Simeon's saying that Jesus was appointed, pre-planned by God for this very purpose. God sent Jesus into the world because he knew the darkness would descend on him. He knew Jesus would be killed. And that this hope for a political Messiah would be snuffed out. The gift that God gave that caused many to break into song would later cause the closest, those closest to him, to deny him. It would cause some to choose to join forces with the darkness rather than the light. It would mean that Mary would have to see her little boy pierced and nailed to a cross. Simeon says, as a result, a sword will pierce your own heart also. But what we know is that darkness didn't win. Death is a consequence only for sin. And because Jesus is God himself, come down in human flesh. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. And because Jesus never did sin, nor could he sin, darkness couldn't hold him because he's pure light. And he broke back from the grave and he resurrected 
This is the sign that is opposed that Simeon's talking about. He's prophesying about what Jesus is going to do. What looks like defeat will actually result in victory. All the darkness that had been drawn together in an attempt to defeat the light would actually serve God's purpose of letting the light break out. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, this is up on the screen. We see this celebrated, brought to attention. This is often read at funerals. It'll say, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the light, came into the world to lure the darkness in in order to defeat it. He's defeated sin and death, and not only for himself personally, but all who would corporately call him Lord and Savior. In Romans 8, this is also up on the screen, it says this, there's therefore now... As a result of the cross, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of human flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is what this gift of God came to do. Jesus came to take care of the separation between God and man. He came to redeem us from our bondage to sin and Satan and death. Jesus came and he took on our temporal life in order to gift us his eternal life. He said, I came that they would have life and life more abundant. He came to bind up the kingdom of darkness that we had been enslaved to and release us into the kingdom that he released, the kingdom of God. And this is available Life abundant is available. For a Christian, that's what you're living in and that's what you're tasting and partaking. The gift God gave us in Jesus that very first Christmas was life in his kingdom. Three things Luke wants to show us in the birth of Christ and the song of Simeon is that Jesus is the summation of God's eternal people. Sorry, yet... God is the summation of God's eternal plan. He's the consolation of God's eternal people. There you go. And Jesus came to unleash God's eternal kingdom. And I want to invite you to just read on with me. Uh, verse 36 to 38. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She would advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was in a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. Now, um, some, some in, from the Greek actually think that she lived 84 years after her husband died as, as, as a widow. So what we know, though, here is that Anna's in her golden years, as they say. And then as a widow until she was 84, she didn't depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She's dedicated her life to God. And, and coming up at that very hour... She apparently saw Jesus and she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, meaning Jesus, to whom, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. And there's that word again, waiting. Waiting. And I want to spend just the little bit of time that we have left together on just this word waiting. Really for two reasons. One, because um, we're all waiting for something. And secondly, 
we all struggle with waiting, right? We live in a day and age where we don't have to wait for a single thing. Our culture actually teaches us, trains us not to wait. The anthem of our culture is indulge now. For movies on demand, same-day delivery, fast food, high-speed internet, our banks telling us, you're richer than you think, here's a giant credit, let me go buy everything you can't afford, why wait and save up? You want a tree in your yard? Awesome, you can have a 50-foot tree planted tomorrow. Why plant a seed? You want to go to Africa? Fantastic. It used to take three months on a boat. Get on a plane, and in 13 hours, you can be in Kenya. We're still impatient, especially if you have to fly with two children. Um, you, want, you want to reheat your dinner without dirtying a pan? Just pop it in the microwave for 30 seconds. While I stand there, though, I still tap my fingers. I mean, but honestly, somebody needs to invent like a 240 microwave. Popcorn shouldn't take more than five seconds. You, we hate waiting. We hate waiting. I hate waiting. Let me just ask us, on the grand scheme of things, church, what are you personally waiting for? What are you waiting for? You and I, like Simeon and Anna, we find ourselves in God's waiting room. They were waiting for the Messiah to come, be the summation of God's eternal plan and purposes, the consolation of God's eternal people. You and I, while being recipients of this eternal life and the consolation that Jesus came to give, are still waiting on the consummation of that, the full delivery of that, the completion of God's plan. The hero has broke into the story, but we're still living in those chapters in the lead up to the happily ever after, if you will. As Tom Petty said, the harding, or the, the harding, the waiting is the hardest part. We wrestle with waiting. I read a theologian this week, it's up on the screen. Um, Lewis Smeads, he said this, waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we can't light. We wait in fear for a happy ending we can't write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. What are you waiting for? So many things we tie our hope to. So many things that will bring us joy and satisfaction. That hunger we have at the soul level, we're keenly aware of. I don't know what it is that you're waiting for. If you're like me, it could be any number of hundreds of thousands of things. What's that for you, though? What is it? I want to close by suggesting three things. That what we are truly waiting for is not a what, but a who. What you are truly waiting for is not a what, but a who. The only one who can truly satisfy the human heart is the one who made it. Jesus didn't come to just bring consolation, but to be consolation. He is the consoler and the consolation. He is what our souls actually need. Second thing I want to suggest is that there is more enjoyment in life and soul-level peace.
peace to be found in this who than in anything you might be hoping for. This, I don't say to invalidate whatever practical need you might be waiting for, but if your heart's anything like mine, it just gravitates to all these other places. And ultimately, Jesus is the gift that we need. Jesus is the gift to be unwrapped and enjoyed today and every day, more and more and more. He is what will satisfy us. John 7, 38, Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, so placing your faith in him, trusting him, submitting your life to him, calling him Lord of your life, out of him will flow rivers of living water. What we're waiting for is not a what, it's a who. The thing that's going to truly satisfy us is not a, a thing, but a who. And then thirdly, the third thing I want to suggest is that when you truly behold and take take hold of all that God has for us in Christ, that just like Simeon, you won't be able to help but sing. Your life will not be able to help but testify to this. When we truly unwrap the gift of Christ, when we truly see him for all he is, we really see and understand what God accomplished in Jesus. If we truly grasp the work that he's done on our behalf, if we've truly tasted the kingdom that he came to unleash, we can't remain silent. And I want to close in calling us to two things. I want to call us this Christmas season to the enjoyment of God's gift in a deeper way than we've ever noticed before. And I think that this is what Luke is setting up in the, the song of Simeon in the life of Jesus, is that there's a joy and a delight in Christ, and it's probably something that we... It's surely something that we need to tap into more than we ever have before. We're never going to exhaust the bottom of that. I want to call us as a church to, to meditate and to think on that. And as we do, I want to call us to go and tell just like Anna did. To sing just like Simeon did, but to go and tell just like Anna did. Because we live in the middle of a city that's looking for hope in places that can never offer it. And we're to be a people who are tasting and delighting and finding satisfaction. And all that can result from that is singing is going and telling. This is what both Simeon and Anna break into, and it's what we need to break into as well. God's gift is not just for us, and some of us have been holding that like it's only for us. It's for the whole world. It's for this whole city, and God has placed you in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, with the family members as frustrating as they are, with the friends as frustrating or as fantastic as they are, he's placed you where you are in order to sing and in order to tell this story. This is a story that's to be heralded everywhere, and it's our one time a year where we get to intersect with culture on this. We both celebrate this holiday. They've just lost track of what the gift is. So church, I want to call us to the enjoyment of Christ, and I want to call you to go and tell somebody. Go and tell someone. Luke or um, 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 Olaf's is going to tell you at the end. Pardon me, Olaf's. Lloyd is going to tell you at the end. My brain. Pardon me. <laughs> Lloyd's going to tell you at the back end about the cards. But we've got invites to our Christmas Eve service, and just make use of these. Be praying. 
praying these two things, that we would, this gift would unpack in our hearts more this Christmas season, but also that God would unpack that in our city and transform North Vancouver. I believe he's going to. I believe he has some fantastic things in store, and I'm excited to be on mission with all of you. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for this record in Scripture just of your faithful servant who waited patiently for both Simeon and Anna who exemplify a trust in your word that what you've said will come to pass. And we, we stand on this beautiful history and foundation of your word coming true. And so we know all that you've said from here on out will come true as well. We know that your gospel will not be caged, that the darkness will not overtake the light. We know you've already come and defeated it. We know that you've got a plan for North Vancouver that is bigger than we can fathom. We know that you've got a movement long to do through us in our neighborhoods, in our friend circles. Forgive us our timidity. Forgive us for not unpacking that gift more and enjoying it. We pray, I pray, I plead in my own heart, unpack that. Would you use us to tell hundreds and thousands more on the shore, Father? We exist for your glory. We are your body, the fullness of you here on earth, Ephesians says. And we believe that you have good works prepared before the foundations of the world for us. Today, Holy Spirit, as we scatter, would you use us to carry out those, the good works that you have planned for today? And I believe there is some. For every single person, I believe there's a good work for today. Spend us for your glory, Jesus. Amen.